to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Greetings and salutations. Happy Tuesday. Good to see so many familiar faces around the room. I'm here with the delightful and exceptional Ben Smith. I'm going to remind everyone you can follow Shorenstein Center. We have a hashtag for this conversation, hashtag Ben Smith. Talking to Ben ahead of time, he, Ben Smith spelled exactly how it sounds, no silent E's or Q's or anything of that effect. Um, talking to him ahead of time, he said uh, we were allowed to ask him anything. Uh, so I hope we all heartily take him up on that offer. Uh, he also encouraged me to keep his, uh, his introduction very short. Uh, he has been called one of the most talented and admired scoop mongers in the game. I like that one. That is a good one. Yeah. One of Fortune's 40 Under 40. He was at uh, Politico and prior to that at Time Magazine and the New York Daily News. But lately we know him as the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. I dare say pioneering a new model for journalism. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. I was never at Time Magazine. Never at Time Magazine. Um, the daily blog that Time Magazine named one of the five essential blogs. Which is almost the same thing, really. Yeah. I read that too um, fast. It's cool. You know, we understand Harvard makes yes. errors sometimes. Um, Rarely. I, I understand I, I the, make, the speed and aggregation pressure. For the record, I make errors. I'm not sure Harvard does. That was, that was sent by Alice, so. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, no, it's, right. it's accurate, actually. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So I thought maybe we could just uh, start by kind of asking you about your trajectory. Just tell us a little bit about your career and <laughs> how you ended up at BuzzFeed and how that might be different than working at political or before that a more traditional newsroom. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think I'll try, I'll try to like try to keep that fairly short. And I feel like I'd you know, I like I like answering questions. Um, so my own background is I was you know, basically covering politics in New York City Hall and. You know, the pol politics is always sort of this fabric of rumor and gossip and little information and scoops, which sometimes add up to, you know, a governor getting forced out of office. But off, but, but it's this very, there's, you know, it's, but, and if you're a print reporter on a, week, on a daily deadline, or in my case, on a weekly deadline, like, you just have all this information that you can't really use, and you're calling sources and trading it. And, um, and, I've, and I covered the 2004 election for the New York Observer that way and, then, and, and got obsessed with blogs like Andrew Sullivan's and Josh Marshall's, which were huge in that election. Um, and, then, and, then started, and then thought it would be useful to start a New York fund to try starting a New York one, see if I could get like 100 people to read it, um, which was, you know, and which were basically the universe of people with whom I was every day talking about, um, about politics and about political information. And the, the only sort of precursor to a blog in New York City politics was this guy named Isaac Weinberger, who was an Orthodox Jewish political operative who David Dinkins had given a no-show job at the Department of Transportation and who had spent his days calling reporters and saying, what's the latest? And then he would call you and then he would call someone else and all the information would travel that way. Um, and so at first with a blog, like there was this incredible arbitrage opportunity where like if a press release was sent out at 11 a.m., you could go have lunch and then copy and paste it to your blog. And if, if for, for the thousands of people who cared, not tens of thousands, but, you know, a few thousand people who cared, that was the only way to find out what had happened that day until the New York Times put it on their website at midnight. Um, and, you know, like the Times pretty quickly figured out that they could, in fact, publish their story at noon and so much for that advantage. Um, but, but I think the sort of... I then went to Politico, and again, I think in the beginning of the 2008 cycle, we were just able to kind of be faster, and to than than anyone else, and and to and you know whether it was um, text or even video, you know, you'd go to a political event, and there would be a bank of cameras from the networks and from the cable channels, and you'd have like a handy handheld camera, and if you could get that thing up in 20 minutes, like it would be hours before the networks just technically could go to the trucks and load the tapes and make sure they were edited right. And, and so there were these sort of technical advantages that, you know, very quickly got, you know, went away. Um, but for a while, digital publications like Politico, were, you were just able to win on kind of raw speed. And I think that's part of, part of what, um, you know, that was sort of the, uh, the point of entry. As, um, and, and on reporting the sort of incremental nuggets that, that the inside conversation has always been all about, even if they were buried in larger stories. Um, 
and and then and so the and in two thousand the two thousand twelve election, this political blogosphere was very central to the political conversation, and the way it kind of worked was that if you were you know I was I'm really you know basically a beat reporter and trying to break news on there and also trying the way but the way the sort of ecosystem works is you try to have arguments with other bloggers and if you want to get sort of more traffic and readers and attention like you pick fights and so that you know Nate Silver writes something and I then write something saying that he's an idiot and then I email him the link and say hey Nate I called you an idiot here and I hope you'll attack me back and link me in the attack um, and this is like sort of a weird thing but but was part of that ecosystem and when Twitter popped up and, and, so, and so in the 2008 election um, that was, you know, these blogs were really the center of that conversation, and the campaigns were obsessed with them, and the, and they would really kind of, they were where this central political conversation that, you know, that has always been around, that was the boys on the bus in 1972, um, but that's where it was playing out. And then soon after the 2012 election, if you were in that conversation, you could just feel Twitter just totally suck the life out of it, really during the healthcare debate, because it was really a much more efficient way to communicate these, you know, these interesting little factual nuggets of a particularly a legislative fight on Capitol Hill, no single one of which is worth a story, and really by the time you've written a story about it, it's changed, because they, you know, particularly in legislative fights, they're these kind of constantly shifting incremental sands. Um, and also, you know, it's much, Twitter's a much, it's the, it saves the awkwardness of having to email the person you're attacking them when you can just tag them with their Twitter handle. Um, and so I think for reporter, and politics is in some ways often on the leading edge of these communications changes because politicians and political campaigns are basically in the media business. You know, they're putting out speeches, they're putting out videos. They only <laughs> exist through, they live through the media and, and are obsessed with it. And, um, and so, and, and are very quick to respond to these 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 te technological changes because because they're so close to the media business, um, and so I think if that has happened maybe first in politics or very early in politics, just this that if you're if if you were a political reporter, the kind of as a as a consumer, I was getting all my news from Twitter because it was where you were finding it first, and and then also really as a publish you know in terms of publishing stories. If I got a scoop, it had been, you know, it used to be if I could get the splash of Politico or a link on the Huffington Post or the Drudge Report, that was the central way that a big piece, a big piece of news broke on the web. And that changed to watching people, you know, watching people distribute it on Twitter and seeing the story spread on Twitter and seeing that as sort of the central kind of distribution channel for a breaking news story. And so when this guy, Jonah Peretti, called me up in 2011 saying that he had this site that had a lot of traffic um, and was famous for cute animals called BuzzFeed. This did not initially make a ton of sense to me, um, that, that, that he was in some way in the same business that I was, and he had this whole spiel about the social web that I didn't really understand. Um, but basically, BuzzFeed had been this laboratory for, for trying to figure out what people would share and what people would share, particularly on Facebook, you know, had been pictures of your yourself and your kids and your drunk friends and your pets and then maybe it was like pictures of other people's cute pets and memes and sort of the web culture images and things and then it, you know by 2011 it was starting to be New Yorker articles and New York Times articles and news um, and so this notion that um, you know that for a generation of, of people consuming news that the place that they went first was they, they didn't open your web page to your app, they opened Twitter or they opened Facebook and that the challenge was to punch through to that space was really very much for a political reporter already the experience, um, you know, by 2011. So, um, so you're kind of describing this move from uh, what we might think of the morning, evening editions of a newspaper to uh, kind of a digital world where there's a premium on speed and these incremental nuggets. Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of getting this picture that you're drawing something of an arc to, uh, to a place where, you know, it's been pretty clear BuzzFeed has some real aspirations to be a much more substantial news organization um, than when Jonah first called you. I mean, bringing you on board. And so, I, mean, I think we always had the there, aspirations. <laughs> oh, sure, sure, but, sure. Uh, yeah, no, but I mean, when I started, there were like six people and who didn't really think of themselves as journalists. They thought of themselves doing kind of as running a laboratory. And so, uh, or yeah, so you have a newsroom now with a lot. How what's about two hundred? About two hundred people. Yeah. And uh, you described yourself a moment ago as like a beat reporter. 
So how is your organization and the way you're staffing and managing this team, how is that similar to a traditional newsroom and beat reporting versus different? And I'm interested in things like analytics, headline mm -hmm. writing, how you know and video like how do these things all play in i mean i think in some ways it's quite different in this in that we don't think of our front page as being a central focus or certainly not like the front page you know i mean i think a lot of a lot of meetings well, why not? A, a lot of meetings at news organizations i really like which i mean i'm not a big fan of meetings but a lot of meetings at news organizations are about fights over real estate on the front a1 like the a1 the page one meeting yeah, at the times sure. is the important meeting um and a lot of and it Digital organizations, a lot of politics are focused. Internal politics are focused on the homepage, yeah, because that's where the traffic comes from. And I think you know this shift toward well, that's where people think the traffic comes from, right? Or it used to come from, and, and this shift toward toward the fa toward people's homepages being Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, sort of deflates a lot of that, and, and I think forces reporters who you know, which is what good reporters have always done, kind of look outward and look more at the external competition. And so, in some ways. It's. I mean, it's really for for beat reporters. It's a gift. If you're covering tech, if you're covering politics, you're not worrying about what the person next to you is doing. You're competing with everyone else, and you're trying to beat everyone else, which is what you know good reporters basically want to do. Um, and so, in that way, it's actually very traditional, and it's it's a step really back to old school competitive beat reporting and away from the kind of aggregation that was big and from like 2007 to 2011 that was really focused on. You know, getting search engines to index you, um, which wasn't, which was, a, and, and about bringing people to your front page and trying to be like a source for every piece of information in the world. Where I think basically, you know, Twitter is better at that than. Wait, so, any when, so this is what I'm curious. You're the editor in chief. So, a traditional editor in chief would think about what stories are we going to emphasize on a one, right? Right. And so, how if, if if there is no A1, if this is about social sharing, and I just want to add an asterisk, I was curious you didn't mention the inbox in the role of email. Oh, inbox, inbox, email's right? huge, yeah. Email's uh, a big part of it, So, too. if it's not about social sharing, then, or if it's not about the A1 and that priority setting in that sense, what does your job as editor mean? Well, you're still making big you know, choices about stories and what are important stories and what, res what you're going to put resources into. Uh, but, um, it, but is it also like, do you make choices about rewriting headlines to, to make them be more yeah, social friendly? Yeah, although, you know, SE, search, I mean, I think that people learned this lesson from ser search engine optimization was like, was, I think this great crutch for traditional media companies a few years ago because it was like, you know how you get internet traffic is you get these technicians and they come in and they rejigger your site and they tell you, they do magic and there's like three neat tricks, like, like your headlines have to be noun, 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 like it was like the death of headline writing. Um, and then when the sort of when Google I mean Google hasn't really flagged it's still there but it stopped growing as a referrer to publishers and um, and as a center and as a place where the conversation is happening it's kind of not really there so but I think that there was an impulse that oh Facebook and Twitter are kind of like that like let's ask the technicians how to optimize for them um, and there are like I mean I think you know there may some there will be moments when a trick will work like these question mark headlines like you won't believe this thing. Worked on Facebook for a while, but the thing is, you know, Facebook want what Facebook basically wants is a really good experience for its users, and if it's overrun by headlines, you know, and if and if somebody has figured out a trick, they are likely to so make sure. The trick there stop was this working. thing in November and December, right, that uh, sites like Viral Nova and Upworthy that are designed to be quote unquote kind of very social sharing friendly. There were sort of these very drop in traffic because of some. I mean, there's these basically ag Buzzfeed didn't see that drop, right? Right, no, we didn't see a drop. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, I think headlines, you know, the tweet is, I mean, tweets are great headlines. And often, you know, I'll write a headline, a story, and then tweet the story, and then go back and rewrite the headline so to the tweet. 200 staff. But like, the basic goal of a headline, which is to have someone read a story, is, you know, the is, is the same, yeah. 200 staff, so is there an emphasis on headline writing? Is that... Do no. you have specialized people who do it? Is does reporters do it? What's the you know? I don't, I don't think it's. I mean, reporters and editors do it. We do have a. We are able to test them. We can. You can. And depending on the story, you can write a bunch of headlines and see how they perform. Oh. Although, if it's a breaking news story and it's only <coughs> going to be interesting for a couple hours, that doesn't help. But yeah, you can definitely see how stories performed. Lists with numbers in front often do better in that system than than lists without numbers in front. 
So I want to get back to hearing more about how you think about your job as editor-in-chief huh. and how it might be different from, say, a traditional news organization. I mean, I've never been the editor-in-chief of a traditional news organization, although I think that, I mean, in some ways we're pretty... editors as bosses. Though. I have, yeah. Um, it is funny. I think there was... When I started, people kind of hated their editors and hated having editors, and it was so cool to have a blog and be independent and not have to worry about your editors. And now if you're a young reporter... It's like great, if you, like it's a huge luxury to have an editor because there's this wave of digital news organizations just hired kids, gave them no guidance, and were just like write stuff, and and so na- so I do think that people are like happy to have editors again, um, and we see it sort of a selling point for us when we hire people that they'll have great editors. Um, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it's not that different. It's about recruiting amazing people and trying to and pushing them really hard to do stuff that'll break through one way or the other and I think I mean I think the thing is that the standard for what someone will share is really high like you can get somebody to click on pretty much anything if you write the right headline often a very misleading headline and, and that's you know obviously a great web tradition of writing terrible misleading headlines you know Paris Hilton topless and then it's like her in a convertible um, and uh and but no one, I mean, no one is sharing that for a number of reasons. But nobody, but nobody ever shares something that they felt tricked into coming to. People share things that they're interested in, that they like, that they're proud to share. Like there's no, there's no real trick to that. When you think about, uh, so you know, there was this all this stuff about the unbundling of the newspaper. That I was thinking, my great aunt Edna reads the horoscope every day. It's the only thing she reads, but she buys the whole Boston Globe. Right. right? Yeah. And so. Uh, in some sense, watching BuzzFeed and other properties in the space, BuzzFeed definitely seems like the the listicles and the quizzes, but also that is a kind of bundling to help subsidize or pay for more serious reporting. Do you think about it that way? Or you know, the media what? business is funny. Like we don't. I think that's sort of an illusion. Like we don't. Um, you know, we don't sell display ads. I think. There's this assumption from the last five or ten years that the way you make money on the internet is you get a lot of views and that you have get a fraction of a cent for each view. But that, I mean, that model is obviously in a lot of trouble because people hate those ads, those display ads. I mean, when was the last time anybody bought something from seeing a display ad? Um, and so, and advertisers know that nobody's looking at them, so they become very, very aggressive and they drop across your page and you can't find a little X that makes them close. And people hate that. And you don't want to like make your readers hate you. And advertisers aren't stupid and know that like, they don't want to make readers hate them because they blocked the thing they were trying to get to. So, I mean, I think those, we don't, so we don't do any display advertising. So traffic, we don't, you know, we don't, we aren't exactly in the business of getting lots of page views. So I don't, I don't know, I don't really think that the, I don't think of the, I don't think, I guess I don't think of the entertaining stuff as subsidizing the journalism. I think it's complicated. I think media companies that are, that, you know, are good at a lot of things and that are sort of, perfecting their platform and bringing in lots of readers who are interested in a wide range of things you know can do well, well. I agree with you 10,000% that paid page view mo- models built on page views the and then if you're not doing page dangerous. views you know you could argue that um, traffic is basically a cost I was telling our investigations editor that he's like our most efficient employee because he hasn't you know he's, he started a month ago and they haven't this team you know is just getting started hasn't published a word and so they haven't burdened our servers at all so that raises like 20 other interesting questions like one is I want to hear about the investigations team and how you're thinking about that and what kinds of things you want to see BuzzFeed take on but I don't know if we want to answer that before or after this question of okay well if it's not a page view model how do you think about your business model so I don't spend that much time thinking about the business model like we have a very traditional separation between advertising and editorial there um and, and the kind of advertising we sell, to me the closest analogy is like Vogue, is fashion magazines where if you cut all the ads out of Vogue, it would be a worse product. Readers, readers aren't like complaining that there are too many ads. The ads are really beautifully produced and interesting and of the, of the, of the type that, um, you know, of, the, of the genre of content that you're buying the magazine for in the first place, like beautiful photo shoots. Um, I mean, obviously, in other ways, the fashion industry is not like a model of the separation between church and state. But, um, but, but so, you know, we do these um, uh, sort of sponsored content ads that are produced by a creative team, by, by sometimes by the company, by the advertiser, sometimes by our creative, mostly, I think, by our creative team. But that doesn't report to me, that reports up to the ad side, that are like also entertaining lists brought to you by Prius. Um, so, so and I don't know. There is all there is. I mean, I think that there is this tradition that internet advertising is terrible, 
and you know and you know things are ads because they're terrible. But there is this other tradition, which is you know TV advertising and magazine advertising and advertising that is good, and I think that's sort of the business model. And as a reporter, like you'd probably prefer that readers weren't being driven away from your site by the ads. And so, uh, okay, what about the the other question, which is investigations? Yeah, you know the what, what I you know Alex Jones who runs the Shorenstein Center, and I'm standing in that front of him Jones, today. Yeah. That Alex Jones, yes. He, uh, I wasn't sure where you were going with that first. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, you know, he has his book, he talks about the, the iron core of journalism, the, the holding power accountable, and mm-hmm. totally. the kind of crucial nature of the investigative journalist, and how in over the last, really since the fall of the Berlin Wall, it's last two decades, three decades, there's been a slow and steady decline in the resources devoted to that at news organizations. It's been really yeah. acute at a lot of um, a lot of TV and cable, but uh, but also in newspapers and so I just and, and has to, to date has not the slack has not really been picked up by digital news organizations. I mean, I don't know. I think ProPublica does pretty amazing work. So I mean, I don't think it's really true that the slack hasn't been. I mean, I think that. This was a truer thing five or six years ago, and people have gotten used to saying it. But actually, that I mean, I think there's a ton of really interesting investigative journalism going on on the internet, and more and more. So talk to us about your what you um, want to do. But so, but so, yeah, so yeah, so I mean, I think you know, I just think, yeah, like I mean, right, it's just a core function of journalism, and something that readers come to you for is is to is yeah, hold, I mean, I guess holding power accountable is certainly a way to talk about it. Writing stories people don't want written. Um, and there are ways, and there's sort of a, a kind of bloggy form of doing that where you're chipping away and chipping away and chipping away and we've done I think some really good stuff in that kind of in, in that form which is not the traditional kind of metro newspaper investigative model which is like Rosie Gray had this great story or you know probably 50 stories by the end where these conservative bloggers at first it seemed were writing these really positive things about the kind of kleptocratic Malaysian government and it's like what is going on here and it turned out that what was going on was that they were being paid off by the Malaysian government, and it, you know people at Huffington put all over the place, and there was this huge payola thing, and she got it by writing a million items and kind of shaking the bushes, and and that's a thing. That's kind of a kind of investigation that I think like mm. it's kind of the, the kind of beat reporter thing that I you know I'd, I'd always done. But there's also certainly something where you need to like take a bigger swing and step back and take months and see the whole picture before you write a word, and kinds of stories that we felt like we didn't really have like the right muscles to do, and and the, and you know it's, it needed to build. So we brought in this guy Mark Schuess, who um, is a really wonderful reporter and editor who'd won a Pulitzer at the, at the Village Voice of all places back in 2000 for this amazing series on AIDS in Africa, and then had been at the Journal for 10 years and then a ProPublica, and he's um, going to bring on, he's hired half of them, uh, half a dozen uh, ex- pretty experienced investigative reporters to work on big projects, and then also a data team. Do you uh, do you feel any pressure from the business side of the house to make that deliver, or is it... To deliver in what sense? No. I mean, no, I mean, I think, no, I think actually, like, what I, what I sort of hear from the business, I mean, I don't, again, like, we're, it's pretty, like, they don't, there isn't a business side saying, I mean... They're trying to make great advertisements for companies and sell them, but it isn't bare directly. You do whatever you do. <laughs> yeah, and we're trying to build a really good news organization. I mean, I think that's how strong media companies traditionally are built, is not by, is not this kind of constant interplay. I mean, we, should, we though we share a, tech, you know, a, platform, a technological platform that's really important. But, do, um, do you have but I think, any... no, what I hear from the business side often is, like, yeah. it's really cool to work for a place that's doing investigative reporting. It makes me psyched to do my job. Do you have a, uh, that raises two questions, do you have, like, a historical model, like, like an inspiration uh, that you're trying to model BuzzFeed off of, maybe just in values, maybe not in terms of the structure of it, or, like, how do you, how do you think about the... The, the institution that BuzzFeed is becoming? I mean, I do think that there's like a, you know, a pretty strong history in this country of of media companies that, you know, whether it's the newspapers that, that grew up in the 19th century or in the early 20th or the TV networks that grew up in the middle of the 20th century, you know, that, that are bringing a pretty wide array of entertainment, of news, to people that are in, in, in really new forms, but with, with, you know, but trying to get it, but, you know, readers want you to get it right. They want you to be fast. I mean, these are not new things. 
in the production of your news, like in the distribution of your news, you rely heavily on social. Yeah. Um, what and in your business model, you rely heavily on the same kind of model. Yeah, for in sure. the production of your news, especially in investigative, do you see any role for that of, of involving your readers or crowdsourcing or looking at some of the experiments? Yeah, I th- yeah, no, I definitely think there are moments. You see some people starting to do interesting stuff, but you know, we have this huge audience, and I think like finding ways to ask them questions is interesting. Actually, ProPublica sometimes just to harp on them does really interesting stuff with uh, you know obviously a much smaller front page audience of getting people to. And the New York Times has done some interesting stuff, really, with just Google Forms of saying to your readers, like, what's your health insurance like? Tell us. And fill out this form for us. And then you have right there, you know, hundreds of sources who you can call and say, hey, what was the deal with this exactly? Yeah, Guardian took all the expense reports from members of parliament. And yeah, that people was... people helping flag questionable expenses. Yeah, I mean, you know, crowdsourcing is a funny idea because it imagines that people need to come to you to, like... To work on this stuff, like what's I don't totally I think like it imagines that the news organization is going to convene people, but actually I think people on huh. Twitter are very comfortable, you know, making their own decisions and own. convening on their own. And this notion, I do feel like crowdsourcing is a little dated when there's this very vibrant social conversation that doesn't where the news organization can, if it does a great job, ask a really good question and pull people in. But you know, but often people are pretty smart and capable of figuring stuff out without they don't need you to do that. Sure, I'd and, if you just, and if you say like, if you say, "Hey, here's a document. Please do all this work for us," they probably won't. I challenge that a little bit. I think there's, I think people like leadership that. When there's a very provide. smart, focused project that, like, yeah, yeah totally. And I, those examples yeah, yeah. of these Google Forms are great. But I think that there is sort of this illusion that the crowd will do your work for you sometimes. So I want to open it up to questions. Everybody, think about your questions. But I'm going to ask one last one. Maybe not last. I'm going to ask one before I open it up. <laughs> Which is, or two. I'm going to ask two. Uh, what is, what is a, something, a story at BuzzFeed you're, you're maybe not most proud of, but really proud of? What's one uh-huh. of your favorite stories to date? Oh, gosh. You know, it's like, you know, we're publishing so much. I'd probably give you my favorites of the last week or two. Okay, that's good. But um, I thought we had a great interview with the President of, the president of Israel last week. Um, Really great, kind of gimlet-eyed profile of Donald Trump. Yeah, the, last the, week, Trump and Trump. you know that that like, I don't know. I think there's a convention sometimes with people who are really liars and frauds of like, of kind of doing kind of arching your eyebrow rather than just writing what you see and, and reflecting your internal conversation. Um, and that that was and that it's more use. It's better to not just to write what you actually see. And if that's that the person is a delusional fraud to write that. Um, but to let the reporting, you know, do the work. Do, do, do you feel like one of the things I would imagine is a tension for reporting at BuzzFeed, but may not be, is actually a tension between the written word and video. And do you find that to be the case, or how do you think No, I mean, that? I think I, I don't think it's really a tension. I do think, like, that, that, and it's something that the form of the news article, you know, is something that grew up in newspapers for these very specific reasons and has this very formal, formal, sometimes very wooden structure. Um... The, I mean, the old, old school wire stories are the worst, but AP, which I think AP knows better than anybody else and has been scrambling to figure out not to, to do really, try to do compelling features rather than this kind of reverse pyramid thing. Um, but no, I think it's more that, like, we're trying to figure out, like, you know, when, when there's, you know, when you have new information, Twitter loves that. If you have a scoop, there's no problem with getting that shared. It doesn't really matter how you present it in a certain way. But, um, you know, but in telling this, you know, there are two different challenges. One is in telling, like, a, you know, what happened in Ukraine yesterday and telling that story to the extent that you can pull in, you know, rather than rather than describing a scene, you can pull in the image, you know, rather than if it, often, you know, increasingly a politician's statement will actually come via social media and rather than saying such and such Barack Obama tweeted, you can just pull in the thing itself. And I think readers, you know, who have a healthy skepticism of interpretation and of any media outlet like to see the thing itself rather than your digestion of it and that incre- and that I don't know it's really useful to, to pull all those elements to the extent that you can into the story um, including video I don't think that I don't really see video as a great way to communicate straight information like I don't think a person reading their story aloud to a camera is as effective a way of communicating that story as giving you text like I think words and text are very very great so like in your investigative in the investigations you're starting are you hiring any video 
people? We have an incredibly strong video team in LA run by this guy, Zay Frank, who was this really the early... Show. Yeah, the show. So I'm oh an my obsessive God. See, the show person. See, who's a celebrity to a small minority uh, of devotees. I actually, I actually have a League of Awesomeness tattoo, which oh. I shouldn't even admit. That's amazing. So, who's this web pioneer who has a cult following, um, but who's been thinking about digital video forever, who has a team of like 40 producers out there. He's really brilliant. You and just so, made my day. Yeah, Dave Frank. Awesome. He's, so he's, so he's, so, but I think my view and you know, he doesn't, he's really, it's an, he's, he doesn't report to me. And most of what he does is kind of entertainment and web culture and figuring out what people will share. And it doesn't look like TV and it isn't descended linearly from TV. But I think, you know, they're figuring out forms that you can use to tell news stories. But I think the video that tells news stories, I mean, one thing is raw video from the scene. Like, that's great. And there are certain stories that are best told with breaking video. You know, that's, and increasingly, when a bomb goes off, there is someone there with a phone that takes video, and that's amazing and, you know, um, incredibly powerful. But I also think that, you know, they're figuring out these forms, mostly fun right now, but that, you know, we're starting to say, like, oh, how could you apply that to news? But I think that news video that grows out of web forms is going to be what works, rather than taking... TV forms yeah. and trying to stick them on the internet. I have to say, the most exciting thing about listening to the last half hour is this kind of vision of real news, real <laughs> reporting, but broken out of traditional forms. Yeah, I think norms. our basic view is yeah. that is that like the values don't really change that much, but the forms change really radically. Mm. Questions? Questions? Student, 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 student questions. <coughs> from behind and on high. Who are BuzzFeed's backers? Um, a bunch of, let's, uh, basically a bunch of venture capitalists. For, like well, there's a, um, there's a firm called NEA, there's Hearst Ventures, Hearst. which is a publisher and also has investment fund. I don't have a list at hand. And I don't, it doesn't like impact my day-to-day -day life. But it's interesting to know who's mm. paying the bills. For sure. You should Google it. There's more detail there. Yeah. Do you count as a student, Carolyn? Oh, is this supposed to No, I'm joking. Go ahead. <laughs> um, you were writing about how between 2007 and 2011, there was this move towards aggregation, and that sort of switched away from people competing to be the leading homepage as a news outlet, and the homepage's social platforms instead. Um, just to recap, I sort of a two-part question. One was, what do you think specifically BuzzFeed's role was in making that shift? I mean, was that just we all decided to do it differently? Or was that really about someone pioneering a new kind of content? And then depending on that, what is the responsibility of news outlets like BuzzFeed, but other people too, in being forthright about their relationships with those social platforms and how they sort of percolate that content? Um, let's, that's a good question. Let's see. I mean, I, I don't flatter myself that we caused Facebook and Twitter to become central. I think they're incredibly powerful tools and you know, great ways to communicate and basically better than the, their predecessors, and that's why people like them so much. I mean, as a news junkie, like, Twitter is just the best thing, and it's so much better than going to nine different websites just and trying to, like, put the stories next to each other and see what the incremental advance the Washington Post has that the Times doesn't have and whether the Times updated its story. I mean, yeah, so, you know, and having the reporters just tweeting their notebooks. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't know. I think we followed this, and, and we're kind of part of and this shift. But, basically, you know, but I think the way we kind of see it is that these social platforms are the train tracks, or in a different way of speaking, they're the Comcasts and the Time Warner, they're the cable companies, and that we're the content companies, you know, we're the Viacom, we're the, you know, we're the companies, that, that we're, we're trying to, we're running the trains, but we don't, but they own the tracks, and that that's a traditional kind of media relationship. Um, <laughs> and Comcast owns the tracks underneath Comcast that. owns all the, right, Comcast <laughs> then owns the tracks underneath that and all of, owns the land or something. Um, I don't, yeah, that's, that's something. Um, and then in terms of our relationships with the with the social networks, right, there, like, like there was some speculation, there was some, as far as I understood it, totally uninformed speculation that we were bribing Facebook. Um, well, but you do advertisers pay Facebook. Or you advertisers lots of advertisers pay Facebook, for sure. But in the Facebook, yeah, then that Facebook, there was, I, I, right, and if we were, in, I, I would hope we would be, I don't know if we were in some sort of secret. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we should be transparent about it. That's also crazy. Um, that particular conspiracy theory, um, and and false. But yeah, no, I think 
Right. That's interesting, though. The, like whether media companies should be how trans. Yeah, I think we probably we should be as transparent as we can be. I mean, there isn't much. But how much do you even know about what Facebook's doing with your content? Right? Yeah, we don't. That's that's what I was going to say. Is we don't. You know, Facebook is trying to make a great news feed for its users. Um, and I think the way we think about it is that you can get very, very focused on gaming these um, these social platforms day to day, and you know, and so, like I mean, the famous example with Google is Demand Media, which figured out how to get like how, these these you know, if you Googled you know how do I make fried eggs, like their thing would go to the top, and they got all this traffic, even though it was probably a really bad way, recipe for frying eggs, but they had like gamed it, and Google got tired of, and basically Google decided that demand media was serving its users crappy content, and that was mis- that was not good for Google. And so one day Google changed the algorithm a little and totally destroyed that company. Um, and so if you get, and you, so you can get over, I mean, so we spend a lot of time thinking about kind of what will people share, what do people like to share, why are they sharing this not, what's not exactly how do you game this platform today. So let me ask a question, kind of follow up. Is you had mentioned A/B testing headlines? You know, I always think of the digital world as very analytics driven. And mm-hmm. do you is do you consult your analytics in Chartbeat regular daily, or it does it play less of a role for you? Um, or what is the we use, we, we have our we have our own analytics. We don't use Chartbeat. Um, and we use Google Analytics also. Yeah, I mean, I have. I mean, I have. I mean, I have open all the time something that's telling me what the top stories on the site are and where the where the traffic's coming from, and um, and I think reporters. I mean, Matt Buchanan, my old colleague who's now at the New Yorker, had this line about being traffic mindful, which I kind of like, like because you know you just have to under. It's important to understand who's reading you and why they're reading you and where they're finding your story because ultimately you are, you do want people to read your stuff, but it's also really easy to over optimize and to say, like. I mean, that's where you get really misleading headlines. Like, yes, more people will click on this headline that says this is Rihanna nude when it's a story about, you know, Mitt Romney. Um, but, like, that, you know, you can very easily over-optimize for that. And so, you know, you want to... And I think the way we think about sort of numbers is more that, you know, this story has a universe... And you know, this is not science here, although, you know, you get a, a sense of it from looking at numbers all the time. But, you know, maybe 10,000 people might be interested in a scoop about like transgender legal developments like maybe max 10,000 people um, and so if Chris Geidner gets that scoop and like six or 7,000 people read it like that's a pretty good that's really good if 12 you know if, if 200 people read it we probably did something wrong so and you you know whereas the cat 31 cats who are disappointed in you like you know the potential readership is the entire human race <laughs> and so if six or 7,000 people read that it's a disaster yeah. so you sort of yeah. have to kind of keep those things. Uh-huh. Do you have in your head a ratio for that kind of content? No. I uh, know. I mean, I think we want to be good at all these things and, you know, give, be giving you guys, giving a reader great entertainment and news. And, but we don't, but there, so there, it's not like we're trying to set some internal balance and the, or that right. we assume ever some, some person is coming and reading our entire website and getting their spinach and their meat and their, you know, and like, dessert. Like, no, I, mean, I think we want to serve readers where they are. So we've talked a lot about the kind of aspirations and investigative journalism of the content. There are some critics now of the content now. Um, Boston-based writer Luke O'Neill and Esquire wrote, The Year We Broke the Internet, um, and talked a lot about uh, BuzzFeed, Upworthy, and a lot of other organizations that they publish a hoax, like the, the Gale TV producer, and then BuzzFeed gets a lot of money and clicks, and then they get... Then they money. Reveal. How do we get money for that? I guess, it's, I guess it goes back to the. I mean, so you know, know, I mean, I think like obviously, like news organizations make mistakes. I mean, I, I actually think, and it's it's hard to know when media criticism is criticizing something new. Like I do think, for instance, right now that like the decisions editors have to make constantly about do we have this story well enough to go with it right now? Because I know the Wall Street Journal has it. Like I was talking to a guy at a finance magazine yesterday. The journal will go like a little. Their standard is just slightly lower for sourcing on a certain kind, a certain beat. And so, like, they, this reporter gets beat every day because, you know, and so these ed- editors, are, and that's a real pressure, and editors are making, like, tough, just tough, a new kind of decision around speed. Um, on the other hand, get, you know, when a source lies and you get something wrong, like Esquire actually spent a lot of this year worrying about this. Uh, the, uh, they, they did a long profile of a guy who said he was the sh- guy who shot Osama bin Laden, and then a lot of people contested that question. Like, 
when your sources lie to you, that's a huge. And I, I'm not sure how that worked I mean, out. It, it but it wasn't an attack on the foundations. I mean, he took credit. He's a pretty. No, I know, but he, but time. he's sort of blaming. I, I thought I really did read that piece, yeah. and I thought, you know, hoaxes have been around a long time. It sucks when you get taken in and you correct, and it's it's bad for your credibility. But, and I, so, and I, but I don't think that's. I guess I don't really think that's. I think that it's a mistake to think that's an internet problem. I mean, and obviously it's, it's, compelling it's, hoaxes that, that are like, great he's a, stories. He's a I mean, Janet. He's a freelancer, and so like you, and to make money as a freelancer, as a reporter, you have to turn out and you have to beat. And so it's more of a speed than like the. More I don't know. I mean, great hoax. I mean, Janet Hook, you know, won a Pulitzer for this legendary fake story about a poor, you know, poor child in Washington D.C. Like, you know, there is there is often a short term gain to making shit up, but like, you know, it's, there's not. But obviously, it's not good for your business in the long term. So I don't know. I, I guess I don't really think that's an internet problem, though. I, I think that's a journalism problem. I do want to push you a little bit on this notion that page views don't matter to BuzzFeed. That's a little facile. I yeah, agree. We like we like to have lots of readers. Because. I, no, yeah, it's not that it's, it's not at all they don't. We want to have lots of readers who want to, you know, we want to have the biggest possible financial side of the house. Oh, we want to have the biggest possible audience, and I and the business side, right? Is you know, we're is is, t I guess you know, advertisers want to reach this big audience we have for sure. But it's just that it's not that the media business is more complicated than people assume, and sure. that and sure. that increasingly digital media isn't making its money, or a lot of us aren't on just on on the clicks, and so this idea that we're quality. Yeah, that you want versus quantity. Yeah, I think so. Michael, although I don't totally understand. I mean, it's it's a funny business. I don't know. Can you say a bit more about the native advertising model? Like, how does it really work, and what the role of the editorial team is? So the editorial team has no role, except that we share. I mean, we share a platform. Like, we use the same. Is the first time you see it when it goes up? Yeah, I mean, if I, I don't usually don't see it because I'm not on our homepage all day, but um, yeah, I see it when it goes up. Um, and sometimes I see it when it goes up and it's really good, and I'm like, ah, like that's kind of a clever idea. Um, but it's still written by your own staff. It's like written by people on our advertising side who who report to the advertising salespeople. I mean, and this isn't new either. Condé Nast has had a sponsored content team forever. Um, Forbes. Forbes, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I think, like, in how advertising works is a, like in a broader sense is a great question that I don't really know that you know it's like not really my specialty like why people buy things when they see ads you know that's complicated stuff if, if they if they buy things when they yeah see. so I also had a question hey. about sponsored content oh, welcome thank Sorry, you for coming you. <laughs> no, no thank you for being here um, so uh, I'm the politics editor of Roll Call and so we put a lot of value on uh, kind of having a higher audience right that's more attractive to advertisers so I wonder if that's something that you at all see or use in your political coverage is the fact is your political audience more desirable than other parts and do you quantify that no you know I mean like the right there's I mean the no we're not doing what roll call and I mean like even there's a, there's the right there I mean one of the models that has really been really successful for Politico and also for roll call and for these DC publications is to reach a small elite audience when I was at the um, my first gig was as an intern at the Jewish Forward and when people would ask about circulation, the uh, the line was always that well, it's it's two old Jews, but it's the right two Jews. Um, so you know, and I think that's like yes, exactly. So that's like you know, that's always been a great, that's legitimately a great business model. And the finance press, in particular, you'll see it like is is always done great with that. But no, we're we're you know reaching lots of you know, lots of people primarily in their twenties and early thirties, in primarily in the U.S. in like coastal cities but really increasingly all over and we're not like selling against I don't I don't think actually though I'm not totally sure against kind of niche markets Hi Ben the last couple places I've, I've worked as an editor I've, I've had to combat this um, trend among reporters that because because of the accelerated pace and because of the, all of the tools available to them getting them out the door Get away from your desk, get out the door, go see it, talk to people. It's getting harder and harder to do. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in what percentage of your reporters or what percentage of your stories are actually produced by people, you know, getting on a plane, getting out the door. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I do think like reporting is kind of undervalued right now in a certain way. And I guess I don't, I mean, I'm fine with, I mean, I think, right, I mean, I think going and Grabbing people and buttonholing them and showing up at their house and ringing their doorbell is really important. But also, you know, calling and emailing people. I mean, I, you know, doing 
reporting, I think is, yeah, I mean, that's how you, I mean, I think, you know, the way you get people to read you is you take something that is not on the internet and you put it on the internet, and that's often by going and grabbing someone, and, you know, we have correspondents all over the world, and there, you know, women starting in Nairobi shortly, and I think, yeah, you have to be in the place. What, um, I know you said earlier that you kind of think that everybody out there is a competitor in some sense, right, but are there specific institutions, digital outlets or otherwise, that you pay a lot of attention to what they're doing because you think of them as com- close competitors? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because in a way, like, every single piece of content is competing for your attention with every single other thing, including everything else on my site and everything on every other site, but, um, and TV and radio. and I mean, so that, that's, in some sense, that's the competition. I mean, I do think that there's this generation of... Um, of places that grew up on the web that are doing increasingly interesting and ambitious stuff. I mean, I guess I put Vice in that category. Vox is, uh, is doing some interesting stuff. I think Business Insider is getting increasingly ambitious. So yeah, I think there's... I mean, I think David Carr had a really smart column about this. And I think that it turned out that it was... I mean, I think a lot of people thought that there would be this sort of convergence between um, traditional outlets and these new outlets. And I, I feel like that culture, it's been a little... It's like less... There's a little less convergence than I expected. Like... You know, the I think the a lot of traditional outlets basically like you hire some like a few years ago like the Washington Post hires Ezra Klein. It's like all right, we're gonna get figure out the internet by hiring these bloggers, and they'll bring us some internet. Nate but then Silver. what happens is the, and then Nate Silver, and then but then that digital world matured, and like Ezra and Nate were like, yeah, you know, we're just gonna leave now and go back where we came from because now it can pay us the internet. You know, and so I don't know. To what extent do you think the internet uh, rewards? individual talent that like Ezra and Ezra and Nate are two good examples of people with significant personal followings right and I, I might even put you in that category too right and uh, I like think a little Twitter less than it used to I mean just nice you know I, mean, I think a little less than it used to because I think like this you're only as good as your last story thing which has always been like you know a nightmare for every news reporter, um, you know, but also totally true. Is like kind of truer again. Like it used to be like you had your blog, people would come to your homepage, and that's, and so you kind of build them in. You write boring shit for a couple of weeks, and they'd kind of stick with you. Um, but now it's like, you know, the stories that are blowing up the internet. Like you don't really care who wrote it as long as it's. I mean, you know, you I mean you care that it's somebody that you trust or writes for an organization you trust. But I think that actually, like a great story by somebody you've never heard of can break through now in a way that in the kind of era where these big bloggers were keep were gatekeepers was how are you thinking about covering 2016 and what role do you think you'd mentioned before the kind of boys in the bus we had peter hamby here's a fellow who wrote a thing yeah he wrote a Twitter, really interesting right? thing about how so how, where do you how do you what how are you thinking about 2016 um gosh i kind of don't want to say i have lots of thoughts i, I bet not <laughs> i mean i think it'll be really interesting i think um you know, I think we're having, yeah, I think, I think that um, a, a lot of these kind of new webby forms, the people are more used to them and more comfortable. But the political, I mean, the political campaigns are themselves media organizations and are going to be producing, kind of attempting to produce memes and, and to be in this digital conversation in a way that's much more, I think, native. Be then, a competitor in many yeah, ways. I mean, this has started in 08 when I was a Politico, and we were producing these videos, which was like me talking to a camera, were terrible. And um, the Obama campaign was producing these like incredibly powerful, well produced, but not too slick. And if you were a consumer choosing which one you were going to watch, you were obviously going to watch the Obama campaign video because it was better. And so, right, we're going to be competing against them increasingly, I think. And also, easy to imagine them buying native advertising on BuzzFeed. Yeah, they did last cycle. Yeah. Uh, what about, um, well, first, any other, other questions? Behind behind you. You. Yeah. Sorry, I'm behind you. So you mentioned that there's a lot of cartoon and back to sort of the values of old journalism, but I'm wondering with this technological shift, how has that changed the profile of a successful journalist in your view? Yeah, I actually think that, like, a lot of the most successful journalists now are, like, really old school. Like, John, St- and, and in a way, like, there are reporters who kind of missed the aggregation era and were really, like, benefited from that like John Stanton our DC bureau chief who you know it's just like like totally didn't he was at roll call behind the paywall really kind of missed that whole thing where you were trying to aggregate and put things on the internet he was just reporting things and breaking news and writing smart stories and really kind of benefited from that in a way that he never learned how to aggregate like because now it's not valuable again so I think I don't know I mean I kind of look for like I, I would say like the best quality in reporters is sort of sheer aggression 
sheer aggression. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. To jump back a bit, you talked about how much speed was a factor yeah. in the last couple elections. You can't get much faster, right? So what's what's going to be the next... I actually think, I mean, I think like what you see now is that the big story is the break, that that a lot of this fast incremental stuff can just live on Twitter and you don't need to put it on your website. Like the Twitter's a great place just to say, here's the thing that just happened, here's the thing the politician just said. You don't really have anything to add, just leave it there. Um, and you know that often the stories that break through are the things that you really put a lot of energy into and time and, you know, went really deep on. And that the thing that kind of falls out is like the day story. Like nobody's really reading the thing in the middle. So I don't know. One of the things that hasn't been talked about yet is commenting. So I'm just yeah. really interested to see the trends now on commenting moving more towards annotation style and media and then, you know, towards that kind of stuff. And moving away from sort of sticking out at the bottom of the post. <laughs> but do you see commenting as still being valuable on your platform? Or do you see it just extending into social now and you don't really pay attention? You know, that's a really interesting thing I do think about. I mean, I, when I was at Politico, I think people said accurately that I had the worst comment section on the internet. Um, I mean, it was just hard. It was like graffiti on the bathroom wall, and I would beg them for years to kill it, and they finally did. Um, but, you know, there are certain kinds of posts where, like, if, if a post is sort of hitting a small community that cares a lot about a specific thing, whether it's Hungarian food or whatever, like, you could sometimes there'll be this very rich comment. It's in, conversations and comments. I do think, you know, in the social web is obviously a great place to have these conversations. Twitter is a great place to have these conversations and basically a much better place and the big the, the community of everybody on Twitter is bigger than the community of people commenting on your website. So I think it's a much, you know, it's, there's a place for it but it's not central. I do think the annotation stuff, rap genius is interesting, medium is interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's all sorts of stuff going on but I do, right, I do think like, like RIP blog comments, you know. What uh, w what tool do you use to watch and manage Twitter? Uh, TweetDeck. TweetDeck. Yeah. And I just use the, I have the Twitter app on my phone because TweetBot doesn't work on Android. How, that actually raises an interesting question about how you think about mobile and if that changes the kind of reporting you do. We think, I mean, we think about mobile a lot. Mobiles, we get more than half our traffic from mobile. And, um, and you know, in our CMS, when you or drafting something, the draft comes up in a mobile, there's like an image of a mobile phone, just because, I mean, I don't think it changes the nature of reporting that much, but certainly art, you know, it has, if you're doing an image, like, you really better be able to see what is going on in that image when it's this big, and if you're doing a, hmm. and that's challenging, particularly, like, there's a kind of really complicated infographic, or it just isn't going to work, and if it doesn't work for more than half your readers, like, occasionally, there's maybe still a reason to do it, but it's kind of crazy to do something that doesn't work for more than half your readers. Um, so we, you know, that change that really does change a lot of what our design folks think about. Um, and sometimes, you know, you'll even we'll even publish two images one on top of the other if if you. It's really important to have this chart, but there's a simplified version of it that you can stick in there just because hmm. you just assume that a, a huge chunk of people are coming from mobile. And the more the more widely something's being shared, the more mobile it is because a, a lot of the sharing happens in the Twitter and Facebook apps. Phones. And are you thinking about things like Google Glass or other kind of vehicles of delivery? I should, they, should I be thinking about Google Glass? Okay. Or I'm just thinking like what like <laughs> mobile feels like relatively transitory on a five year timeline. Five years sounds like a long timeline. <laughs> get, get me to the end of the year. Yeah, no, we think a lot about mobile. Yeah, I have a question. Can you talk a little bit about BuzzFeed's partnership with Duolingo? Yeah, yeah this is so cool. Yeah. Um, so. If you don't mind, I'm going to digress slightly just to say what Duolingo is because it's really cool. Um, so there's this, um, I think he's a, car, he's a computer scientist at Carnegie Mellon and Louis mm -hmm. Fanon, this Guatemalan guy, and he invented the, um, the CAPTCHA, which is you go to a website and you have to prove that you're human by typing in this little thing, and then he decided, he thought that like that, he just gave it, he, Yahoo had this spam problem, and he just, when he was an undergrad, developed this and gave it to them and then decided that was sort of a unsatisfying thing to have done and not that interesting and so he figured out that you could have a second box and the first box <coughs> is proving you're a human and the second box is part of Google's project to scan all the world's books and when the scanner hits a word it doesn't know it throws it into that second box and thousands of people type it in on websites and that then pops back into like, Google's it's a really complicated weird idea of human kind of, of algorithm plus human and so his new project is this app called Duolingo which is a really excellent language learning app um, it's free. I'm using it for Portuguese. It's really cool. 
Um, and one of the things that language learners do is translate articles from, say, Portuguese to English. And English speakers and Portuguese speakers kind of work together on this. And then when the, it, and, and they then, and their business model, the app is free and they sell the translations to media companies, including ours. And we were sort of, I, mean, I think we were in kind of the experience. It's a really cool idea. Um, and translation is really hard, and jokes are really hard to translate. And sometimes what you want is not a literal translation. It's a, it's another, a different joke. Um, so, but we use it to, to translate um, our most popular posts into Spanish, French, and Portuguese. And are also, and are, but really are using it to supplement and to help teams of editors working in those languages. But it's really, it's a really cool thing. So can you give us the nature of the <clears throat> most active stories? In other words, what's the variety yeah. that leads uh, if you have your best sellers? Uh, so, so the stuff that gets the most readers is, yeah. is basically things that appeal to kind of like massive pop culture stories yeah, or universal. I'm with Forbes. That's the same thing yeah. to some extent. How to be tough-minded before 8 o'clock in the morning or, you know, a lot of things like that. Servicey stuff. Yeah, we don't do that much service. I and mean, right now, quizzes are huge. I mean, it's enter entertainment, basically, or coverage of Beyonce or massive pop culture figures. But I kind of think this is just like it has always been thus, right? Like, more people were reading about Marilyn Monroe than John F. Kennedy. Yeah. So why, why, do you, why do you do other kinds of stories? Um, why do you do the GLBT? I mean, that's sort of like, why did, why did they hire me? I don't know. Because like, people want to be entertained, and they also want to know what's going on in the world. And I think that's sort of the same people. And we want to do both those things, but I, I don't. Yeah. So and, and then what? It's got an entertainment aspect to it. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. it's not. I mean, I think we both cover entertainment, but also some of what we do really is entertainment. Right. Right. Got it. You think that's the future uh, of where the really gigantic growth of it is? I don't know. I think it's kind of the. I mean, I think it's always been the present, right? I mean, if you look at. I mean, somebody's, I'm going to steal somebody's line here, but you know, nobody. I mean, I don't think people ask Diane Sawyer like, "How do you air The Bachelor?" Or like right. Scott Pelley, like, do you know that the thing that comes after you isn't isn't true? Like this show, um, Person of Interest, like things that aren't that's not true. Like what's going on? Like how do you allow that on your channel? Um, so, um, are there other questions? Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah. What about the quality of the writing? Do you find that a? I, I just sort of noticed the, you know, discounting all the a, the AP style, just but just the quality of writing online. I noticed it's just so much worse. Are you like? addressing that? I don't know. I mean, I guess I can't, I, maybe I don't know what newspaper you grew up reading, but I've read a lot of really bad newspaper copy in my life. Um, the, you know, but I do think editing is really important. I think that, like, particularly um, this word long form that sort of gets attached to long features mm -hmm. online. I'm thinking of even, like, really good writers. I won't name him. Yeah. Somebody who writes really review books and his stuff online is awful. Well, it's probably because it wasn't edited. I mean, I think basically that there's this culture online of well, often, honestly, what it is, really, is that you you write a story, you try to sell it to a magazine, they say no, they say yes, they spend months editing, fact-checking it, and making it beautiful, or they say no, you say screw it and sell for $200 to a website, and it just goes up unedited, and so it reads worse. I mean, I think editing, particularly with long, with, you know, with long features, is incredibly important, and so, like, we do, we very aggressively, we very heavily edit, mm -hmm. and our features director is this guy who was the editor-in-chief of Spin, and... You know, we do a lot of editing on a certain kind of long feature that needs it, I think. And I, but I do think that, like, you know, you're seeing people, often, often it used to be, and less so, that you're seeing people's second best work because mm -hmm. the best work they sold to the New Yorker or the New York Review. And so then, yes, it's worse. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I've just noticed, like, on the Daily Beast, the trend is that you hear about four paragraphs about the, about the reporter before you get to the story. Well, the other editing challenge, I do think, is that, like, if you're an editor of a magazine, you can say, you know what, those four paragraphs about your grandmother like are so moving, but like there's just not that space in column two, and so we have to cut them. Yeah. And you don't have that excuse when you're online, so you actually have to be like, you know what, this is a digression, and it's irrelevant, and it's not very interesting, yeah. which is like a lot harder as an editor. And so like that discipline of, of like just like you always had an excuse to cut in print, and like so most things on the line are too long, yeah. So uh, we're coming to the end of our time together. Thank you very much. But I want to ask you one last question. Uh, this is like that, like last is, one. Oh, uh, just one more before I go. Which is uh, like, what, what what do you what do you think your greatest challenge is uh, the next six twelve months? Like, what are you most worried about or feel like is one of the hardest problems you have to solve? Um, I mean, the thing that I obsess about is hiring. 
is just like hiring great reporters and smart people and then keeping them in this really, really competitive environment right now. Like, you know, where, like, I mean, it's really interesting just right now, you know, like we try to hire people, you know, I think we hire great people and, you know, and mostly and have not really lost people. But, you know, we get people who try to poach our folks all the time. And I mean, and ultimately, you know, it's just like 99% of this is hiring great people. And that's and there's not you know that's just in the media in most businesses I assume but certainly in media like the difference but you know you can have two reporters sitting next to each other and the difference between and if you're just observing them they're both sitting on the desk making phone calls and sending emails but the difference between the great one and the mediocre one I mean like the easiest thing in the world is to be a mediocre reporter it's like the easiest job in the world um, and then to be a really great reporter is really really hard and so. And, and it's hard to find folks. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's what we obsess about is recruiting great people. And, you know, it's interesting. Like, now it's like first look. is so We lost somebody we wanted who went to first look instead because he's kind of a left winger, and that's where we want. You know, like, and, but then also got somebody who first look was trying to recruit. But we're bouncing off new people in the, in the recruiting market in a way that's really interesting. You know, uh, boy, I have many other questions. That opens up a whole other range of things. But we have to wrap it up. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Deborah.